Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Adapia Dorico and Daniel Coca. Welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Today, we are having a conversation with Ryan Sterling, who is the founder of Future You Wealth. He is a successful wealth manager and a sought-after holistic wealth coach, a speaker, and soon-to-be-published author of You're Making Other People Rich. Prior to starting Future You Wealth, Ryan had over 15 years of experience working with individuals and families at large firms such as Alliance Bernstein, Goldman Sachs, BBR Partners, and Capital Group. Ryan earned his BA in economics from Carleton College and has an MBA with a specialization in investment management from Vanderbilt University. He is also a CFA charter holder and a member of the CFA Society of New York. We speak about investing, investment management today, staying the course, acronyms like FIRE, financial independence, retire early, Henry's, high earner, not rich yet. We talk about spending. We talk about the ego. We talk about hobbies. We talk about so much in this episode. As Ryan describes, it comes down to many of us living in this constant state of unrest as we fill voids with possessions and battle the urge to consume on a regular basis. In his upcoming book, You're Making Other People Rich, Ryan explores how to use intention to restore your relationship with wealth. This conversation is a mix of practical and meaningful and is especially thought-provoking in these times of volatility, uncertainty, and this forced stillness that has many of us reflecting on our values, where we assign meaning in the way we live, and what it means to build wealth. Uh, let's dive into all things uh, financial foundation and wealth. And um, how about we start by telling the audience um, a little bit about yourself and your background and what you're doing today? Yeah, for sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me on. Um, I should mention that even though I'm not necessarily a real estate guest, my clients are invested in real estate and I'm a huge advocate of real estate ownership. And I look forward to kind of diving more into that. Um, but just a quick background on, on me and my experience. Um, I've been in the wealth management field uh, going on 16 years now. Um, the bulk of my time in the industry has been working at some of the larger firms in the in the business. I won't necessarily name names, but think of you kind of your big private banks or kind of large global investment management institutions. And I would say that the relationship that I had with my clients was kind of what you think about in a traditional uh, wealth management financial advisory relationship. 
where I would say really the bulk of the time was spent on the investing. So understanding, you know, a family's goals, objectives, you know, taking account their risk tolerance, time horizon, et cetera, and creating asset allocation and portfolios that were very much aligned with, with their objectives and goals. Um, there certainly were planning elements associated with it, um, but really I would say, you know, 70, 80% of the engagement was kind of more on the in investing and the asset allocation. And the fee was a percentage of assets under management. And when you look in the you know, wealth management space and you look at the assets under management, the AUM model, you know, fees range anywhere from kind of one, you know, sometimes up to two and a half percent. I would say that the, the majority of the clients that I worked with um, were older and, and typically retired. So people who were in their, you know, late 60s to, to early 80s. And, you know, one thing I started to notice over the last couple of years in particular was, um, and I'm 38 years old, and part of the appeal for, for having me as part of these various firms was that I'm a younger advisor and I can work with these older clients, but at the same time, I can work with their children, who ultimately the idea is that they're going to be inheriting the wealth. But more and more when I started talking to the children of clients, you know, roughly my age or so, um, I, I, I got the sense that they weren't necessarily interested in having that kind of old school relationship with their financial advisor. And that they were really questioning the value of paying, you know, let's call it one and a half percent for asset allocation advice when there are now options out there like Wealthfront and Betterment, these robo-advisors, or just passive investing and saying if that, I'm just making this up, but a 60-40 portfolio is is appropriate, why not just use you know 60% in a passive equity fund and 60% in a in a municipal bond fund? And it, I just found it uh, just increasingly more challenging over the years to really combat that and to really show value because oftentimes there wasn't a lot of value in the asset allocation advice. I'm not saying that's the case for everyone, but I just, I, I felt that that dynamic needed to be switched as instead of having call it 70 to 80% of the engagement being more asset allocation investing focused, kind of flipping that around and thinking, you know, where, where can we as advisors add more value to clients, but also taking into account kind of this, changing the changing consumer preferences as it relates to professional services and wealth services and trying to get in front of it. So with that, I set the course about two years ago to say, you know, I think this game is going to change. And, and quite frankly, also on the personal side, I was just kind of bored of working inside a big global investment management firm. You know, I was at the point where I was making really good money and was very comfortable from a financial standpoint. Um, but I just wasn't getting a lot of meaning and purpose in it. And again, that combined with the fact that I felt that there was a better way to work with some of these younger clients in particular, that's where I set the intention and the goal to start my own wealth management firm where I could work with clients in a much different capacity. So fast forward then to today, uh, I'm now the owner and founder of uh, Future You Wealth. We are independent, the only wealth, wealth manager. Um, I still do work with clients on the investing where there 
the fee is a percentage of asset center management, but the fees have come down rather dramatically. And I think that's a trend in the business and I wanted to be ahead of that trend. But at the same time, I have a side of my business called wealth coaching. And I'm happy to kind of dive more into this, but the idea of wealth coaching is for the person who may be a high earner, but doesn't have the liquid capital to manage and is stuck and is, is trying to take the first step in this wealth building journey and ultimately helping them unlock the tools to do so. Sorry, I was just taking, I was just taking some notes on, on all of that. I have so many questions that I want to How was to that? Ask. It just says a pretty good job. No, no, no. It was, it was great. I, I, I really want to, uh, I really want to dive into, um, into some of the things that you, you talked about. Um, I really want to start with a couple of things that, that you said, um, which are that things are dynamic and more than ever today, I would say <laughs> that the times that we live in are dynamic and they require Require a dynamic approach. So that combined with changing consumer preferences and technology that streamlines and drives down fees um, and has also created, let's say, like an abundance or an overabundance of options. So how does one come to understand and discern, if not judge, what's best for them in uncertain dynamic times when they even might be earning a lot of money, but somehow they find themselves at the end of the day or the month living almost paycheck to paycheck, like six, mm -hmm. six figure earners living paycheck to paycheck. So all that said, um, you know, how is that, how have you seen that play out for your clients and, and in the world beyond the steps that you've taken to get ahead of it? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And you know, one thing I go over with my clients in particular on the coaching side, I mean, both sides of the business, but really more so on the coaching side um, is, so you're right, just kind of going back, kind of the typical profile is someone who is a, a high earner and, but, but ha is, is fallen victim to a phenomenon called lifestyle creep. And it's every time they get a bonus or anytime they get a raise that they're living, their lifestyle and their living expenses go up commensurate with that increase in, in wages and sometimes even more, you know, it becomes an invitation to get a nicer apartment, uh, buy nicer things, have nicer handbags, go to uh, fancier dinners. And in, in today's world, as you mentioned, everything is so dynamic and information is flowing from so many different areas. One thing that I really spend a lot of time with on the coaching clients is what I call adding back friction. And we add back friction to create space. So I use the example of, you know, take my clients who are in their 70s who have built wealth. Um, when, when they were, were in their prime earning years, you know, you think about the amount of space and friction that existed between them and spending their money. So go back to 1960, whatever, and you wanted to buy a pair of shoes. Um, that could be like a half a day event. You're talking about, I need a pair of shoes. Okay, I need to get cash from the bank. So I'm gonna to drive to the bank, I'm gonna wait in line, I'm actually gonna get cash from the teller. Okay, now I'm gonna to drive to a department store and I gotta see what they have in inventory and then I have to try and choose and maybe they don't have it so then I have to go to another store. I mean, you're talking about, again, buying a pair of shoes could take you six hours or so. Whereas today, you can get an alert on your watch, press two buttons and have 10 pairs of shoes delivered to your door 10 days later or I'm sorry, a day later. So 
you think about, and you think about, that's just one example. You think about food and mention clothes. You think about accessories, like anything. We're just cluttered with so much noise and we're hit from every single angle. And the friction between us and spending our money is non-existent today. We spend a lot of time, again, reintroducing those friction points to add some space and add some intention to spending money. So I think part of the answer in this kind of crazy dynamic world that we live in is just creating more simplicity and creating some more space between impulse and response. So that's on the, the, the spending side. Um, but then on the saving and investing side, it's also just creating more simple rules and boundaries in place to make sure that we're having just a, a systematic automated approach to savings that we're taking a very simple automated approach to investing and ultimately kind of taking the approach of instead of being perfect, let's just get 90% of the way there and 90% of the way is almost just doing it. Yeah. It, it almost feels like the friction when it comes to savings is um, let me call it ego, but our own ego, like our, you know, the, the mind, the ego, the self that just can't sit still and, and be with itself. And, um, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about sometimes if I'm on, on Instagram, there's all these ads and it makes it so easy. And, and you're like, Oh yeah, I like that. I like that. And the next thing, you know, uh, you've, you know, you've hit like Amazon pay or whatever you're using Google pay. And, um, and there it is. So, uh, no, it's, it's fascinating with that though. When you talk about ego though and money, you know, so I, take fitness for example, right? If, if your self-worth is tied up in how physically fit you are, you know, you can't really hide from it. People can see it, right? You walk in a room and you can tell if someone takes care of themselves from a physical standpoint or not. But when it comes to money, if money's a proxy for, for your, um, for your value in this world, right? And it's wrapped up in ego um, it would be a faux pas to walk into a room and have your net worth statement on, you know, plastered on your chest, right? So how do we do it? It's in the watches we wear. It's in the shoes that we have. It's in like the handbags that that we that we that we uh, accessorize with. Um, it's one of those things where we can fake it more with money. So it's one of those things where you're scrolling through social media and you see someone you know just get a promotion and they're showing up showing off their new watch or whatever it may be, it's really easy to say, okay, I need to match that because they can't be better than me. Or, or, you know, you get that jealousy, you get that envy. And it's really hard then to kind of fight back against the urge to say, I need to match that because I need to show my cohort that I'm just as successful as they are. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find, uh, because you're, you're uh, working a lot with uh, younger clients, maybe we dive into the millennials a little bit. Um, you know, do you find that that is like a, a psychological mechanism that they're caught up in? And the reason I ask it, and I'm going to add on to this, is I think about the so-called depression generation, and they were a savings generation. And I'm Italian. My family's Italian. I lived there for a long time. And they save. Like the debt, consumer debt wasn't even really a thing until the early 2000s. Um, and, and so you have a generation that knows how to save and I was brought up knowing how to save and I do and I have done and I continue to do. And, and then it's contrasted with this, this lifestyle here, a culture, a society that's built on spending. Um, do you think that in any way what's going on today may lead us to 
becoming a little more of a savings generation or will we always be battling this internal friction of I need to show that I am wealthy? Yeah, it's um, it, it's a really good question. And I, I am optimistic that some of this mass consumerism is going to be put put to rest. And, I, and I'm already seeing it with my clients. Um, now, granted, the clients that come to me are kind of ready to take the next step and are ready to take accountability and really want to take um, money and savings seriously. Um, in a weird way, though, I almost see it worse with the younger generation X than I do with the millennials. So, what I mean, the younger generation X, like the people who were born in their in the late seventies or so, I almost feel like they are the most prone to overconsumption. And I think part of that was, you know, kind of seeing the consumerism that started in the in the eighties, right, and then the just kind of massive explosion in credit card use. Um, so then kind of growing up with that and then having that collide with the fact that these frictions that I mentioned before are completely eliminated. It's, it's one of those things where I almost feel like in that cohort, I see the more of the things and the stuff helping them show their worth to their friends and society versus the millennials. And in part, I think the millennials who graduated college post 2008 and came into a really difficult economy where opportunities were somewhat limited, I think they they were kind of forced into kind of non-traditional areas and non-traditional jobs that actually provide a lot more purpose than, again, maybe some previous generations. Again, I'll go back to Generation X, where it was, it was aspirational to be an investment banker or to be a corporate attorney. And not to say that that's still not aspirational, but I felt that that was very much the norm and very much expected. And now that's not the case anymore, where investment banks are having a much harder time recruiting younger talents, in part because people just aren't interested and the paycheck isn't providing that much of a, is not really providing a compelling uh, reason anymore. I mean, I think back to the early, or even the mid 90s, or even when I graduated from school in the two, early 2000s, and it was... You know, the idea of being an investment banker was something that everyone was talking about and no one was talking about entrepreneurship, but that has completely changed now where everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. And it's really hard again for some of these traditional career paths to find talent. Yeah. It sounds like my life story, you know, totally. mine too. <laughs> uh, yeah. I grew up, two parents did not go to college, but were so focused on educating their children. You know, I became a corporate lawyer. My younger brother's a doctor. And, you know, he's just kind of getting started in his career. But, you know, I spent six years at a big law firm before I realized like, hey, like this really isn't my aspiration, right? This is what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And, you know, my own personal happiness is really a product of something more than the job and, and how much money I make. And so, you know, I was definitely the guy with my, you know, net worth stapled on my chest for a bit uh, in, the, in the form of nice things. Um, but yeah, things change. And then, you know, I kind of followed that entrepreneurship wave, right. You know, specifically in New York post 2012, um, you know, Bloomberg really did a lot to, uh, push the entrepreneurial environment in New York city, whether it was just grassroots startup, uh, you know, kind of things being all over the place or, you know, Cornell and Technion, 
uh, in Israel forming and creating this huge campus and, and Google having their, their massive office in Chelsea. And all of a sudden, it seemed like everyone wanted to be an entrepreneur. And like, that was the cool thing to do. And you know, I kind of followed that path first as a lawyer and you know, then with Alpha Investing. And just a long way of saying, uh, I think people are, are really heavily influenced by what everyone else is doing in society. Um, so what you're doing, I think, is particularly valuable, uh, giving those folks direction. Because not everyone has you know, parents or mentors that are telling them how to navigate you know, this kind of new world that exists. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I very much kind of fit that profile as well. And just, you know, kind of talking about, you know, generations and the relationship with um, money and career, et cetera. I, uh, you know, I was, I was very much on that path and I was very much tied into my title as a senior vice president and the amount of money that I was making. And it's interesting. I, I had a really amazing experience two years ago, which kind of very much collided with my intention to start this new firm. And that was... So go back early in my career, I remember I had one of those moments where you're going to the printer and I was picking up a print job and this is when I was like a young junior associate and I inadvertently picked up uh, someone else's print job which happened to be the W-2 of this guy who was like 37 years old and was in a more senior position. I saw how much money he made. And I remember looking at that, my eyes popping out of my head. And I said, wow, like when I get there, like I will have made it. And it was just like, I cannot wait till I get there. And I remember two years ago, my birthday is at the end of the year. And I was having one of those moments of reflection. And I just all of a sudden just like, wait, I'm just curious, how much money am I going to make this year? And I pulled up the, um, you know, ADP and my pay stub and all that stuff. And it dawned on me that like, I was going to hit that number that 10 years earlier was like my, I made it number. And I looked and I was like, I was bored out of my mind. I really didn't have the savings I thought I would have when I was making that amount of money. And it was really just an eye-opening experience where I, I was kind of at an inflection point where I looked at the people who were 10 years older than me. And it's funny, like in these corporate settings, you're very much encouraged by management to overspend. So it's like, hey, so-and-so down the hall just bought a million and a half dollar condo. And, you know, don't you want your kids to go to private school someday? And so-and-so just bought XYZ car and look at the watch that, that, you know, this person got when they, when they got the raise and they want you to kind of overspend to keep you in that cycle. And at that inflection point, I kind of looked at the lives of the people who were 10 years above me. I said, I don't want that. Like that doesn't interest me anymore. And I thought that it always would, and it just didn't. And again, that was really kind of what set me on this path to say, I want to go off on my own. Wow. It's so interesting that at these 10 year um, marks or hurdles that at your first 10 year, you were like, I want this. And then at your next 10 years, when you got that, you said, I don't want what's next. And so you, you made this decision to change what's next for you um, and go into entrepreneurship. And like, like you and Dan, I, I, I fit the bill too um, with, my path. And, um, I've really applied uh, so much intention and meaning and purpose. Those are three really big words for me and, and you've used them a lot. Um, I would love to dive into like a couple things, two acronyms actually, yeah. um, because I think that we've, we've touched on them here and there. Um, and the first one is Henry. So a uh, high earner, not rich yet, which is a, such an interesting, category of people, these like six figure or above that seem to be living a paycheck to 
paycheck. Um, I'm curious to know um, how you're advising um, them to spend and invest. And then the other acronym is one that's very, uh, um, it's a very big one in our community, our network, which is FIRE, Financial Independence mm -hmm. Retire Early. A lot of that tied to entrepreneurship and investing and saving. So let's start with, um, let's start with the Henry definition, what you're seeing um, and how you're advising your clients that are in that situation. Yeah, for sure. So, and this is kind of again the classic definition of someone who's one of my coaching clients and people are earning six plus figures and, you know, they might be in their mid thirties and they don't have, again, the liquid um, capital to go to a traditional advisor yet. And I think there's also a lot of unrest that comes with that of how am I making this amount of money? And I feel like I'm nowhere near where my parents were at this age. And, and part of that is where we stand right now, and this is going to tie into real estate, is you know when you look at what a $250,000 income in certain places like New York and LA and some other expensive areas that also happen to come with high incomes, um, you know, we, we've had very low inflation over the last 30 years with the exception of asset price inflation. And in particular, you see it on the real estate front, especially um, for for single family homes. So when you think about someone again in New York or LA who makes $250,000, there's such an anxiety around, oh God, I can't buy a home. And like, that's how I need to build wealth. And like, what, what's wrong with me? And like, how do I get started? Um, there's that and then there's the whole spending thing that we talked about before. But one myth that I try to debunk is that number one, buying a buying a home is the path to riches. Um, I'm a fan of home ownership, but it is not the only way to build wealth. It's not even the best way to build wealth. I think what a lot of these clients, these Henry clients don't realize is that the path to building wealth over time is, is owning appreciating assets. And let me describe what I mean there. Um, so often we are acquiring depreciating assets. And the way you can define a depreciating asset is something that you buy where if you were to try to sell it a year later, it would be worth less or even the day later would be worth less. So like clothes are a depreciating asset, cars are a depreciating asset. Um, and again, just the way our society is structured, we're so, uh, we're, we're, we're very much conditioned to acquire these depreciating assets that provide this short-term dose of, uh, of excitement, but eventually wear off. Um, but the way to acquire wealth is to acquire appreciating assets, asset that, assets that you own that tend to go up over time. So real estate is an appreciating asset. Um, stocks are an appreciating asset. And I think the big misconception is I need more money in order to acquire appreciating assets. And that's just not true. You can get invested in the stock market with as little as $100. And you can buy an S&P 500 index fund or exchange traded fund and you can be an owner of the 500 largest companies in the US. And when I start to frame it like that, to say that don't have these excuses of, of why well, I need more money to acquire these appreciating assets, you can do it now. I mean, you can buy liquid REITs and you can own interest in real estate and you can own interest in stocks. You can own interest. And for someone who's young, fixed income isn't necessarily attractive, especially with these deals right now. But, but you kind of get the point where it's helping to empower these Henry clients to say, you know, even though there's been asset price inflation uh, in terms of buying your personal residence, don't be locked and loaded and thinking that that is the single path to wealth because it's not. It very well could be within 
your, you know, kind of your purview in the next couple of years, but don't stop that from allowing you to get started today. When it comes to, you know, these Henry's, what are the hurdles that you see or the biggest hurdle you see in terms of kind of getting this message across, right? Is it that people just don't have the tools? They don't understand how it works. Is it they understand they shouldn't be spending at the volumes they are, but they really just don't care because they want to be doing it. Like what are the, if you're trying to get your point across, what what are the things that stop you from doing that with your clients? Yeah. I mean, so I talk about, especially on the coaching side, that the, the problem I solve in the world is actually unrest and that people are coming to me in just the state of something's wrong. Okay. Like, I, I'm making this money, but I'm not moving forward. Like, why, why is this? And part of the, the, you know, the exercise is in solving this unrest is getting people on a path to being okay, starting from where they are and kind of detaching from what they should be doing, right? What, what they should be consuming, where they should be going you know, detaching from the ego and, you know, the expectations that we discussed before, because a lot of it is, you know, mentioning people and they, they, they talk about their parents a lot where it's, gosh, I'm, I'm 35 years old and my parents had a house and like three kids at this point. And it's like, that, that, that was a totally different time. Right. And, and we need to start from where you are now. We can't worry about that and kind of detach from those expectations of where you think you should be. Um, so a huge part of building wealth within these coaching clients is first just kind of helping people get comfortable with where they're starting from and commit to turning the page. And it's really kind of breaking out of this cycle that's causing unrest in the first place, but it's really kind of a process of detaching and detaching from these shoulds and detaching from these expectations and detaching from what your ego is telling you about your, your worth. That needs to happen before we can talk about your 401k and investing. And so we spend it, it, part of the initial engagement is I have a opening questionnaire that helps people define wealth on their terms, help people define success, you know, ultimately help them reconnect to hobbies that they, that they used to enjoy doing that have completely gone away that really aren't expensive to re-engage in. Um, but then also part of it is actually putting everything on a piece of paper and actually looking at it, staring at it, getting comfortable with it, and then again, committing to turn the page and move forward. So this is, this is so much up my alley. I, I always talk about I'm digging the soul out from under my ego. Uh, it's like just finding mm-hmm. meaning and purpose and just getting away from all these pre-programmed ideas about what it means to be successful and wealthy. And so few of us really sit with it hard. It's hard sometimes to go inside and look and face and ask yourself questions that you maybe never thought you were allowed to, to ask yourself. Totally. Um, and I think it's amazing that that's just like the baseline, what you do, because so, you know, we're the ones in our own way. A hundred percent of the time, there's nothing outside of us that's in our way. We're in our own way. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm hearing, what you're doing is you're helping people also find that part of them inside of themselves that they need to anchor to, to then go and build and succeed externally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I love that. And, um, and with that, let's talk about this fire. Let's talk about how we get from this meaning and purpose, which should 
pervade everything that we do. Um, and this idea of retiring early, being mm -hmm. financially independent, and then for how long? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, totally. because lifespan and changing, um, you know, the way work is changing as well, especially um, when things get back to what will be a new normal. I think work's going to be different too. Yeah, no question. So I, I really, I, I love the FIRE movement and I kind of see myself as like a FIRE adjacent person. So like someone actually described me once as like a, a FIRE advocate for someone who doesn't want though to live in the woods and like live off the land, right? So I think FIRE to, to a certain point. And I think financial independence, I'm 100% on board with that. I think it's the retire early that I take some exception with and I think we need to redefine. Um, so first off, so many of the, the big proponents of the FIRE movement and the leaders of the FIRE movement are making like pretty good money being the spokespeople for this. So some of these bloggers and influencers, et cetera, I mean, they're making well into the six figures, sometimes even seven figures, you know, promoting this message. So I think you have to understand kind of who it's coming from and the life that they've created for themselves. So I don't know that it's retire early. I think it's financial independence and embrace entrepreneurship is more, I think, along the lines of what the FIRE movement is about. So understanding, you know, what your, your skills are, what your talents are, um, your hobbies, your passions, and having that lead to a path to making money as opposed to, you know, going someplace that you really don't enjoy going to and don't value just in exchange for a paycheck. So I think that's how I want to redefine it, where it's not retiring early, it's ultimately embracing a new way of working and it boils down to um, using your intellectual capital again to derive income. And that's very much like we were talking about this before we started recording. Um, in a way, like I feel like I'm living the fire lifestyle, even though I'm still working and I'm hustling to get clients and I'm definitely working for my clients and working really hard, but I love what I do. And I've been able to kind of craft this life around what I enjoy doing, around what I'm talented in doing. Um, and the reality of it is like, what's the alternative, right? Like sitting on a beach, I'm going to get bored in two weeks. Right. Like I don't want to just live in the woods and spend ten thousand dollars a year. So it's a way to, you know, I, look, I, I no doubt I took a pay cut leaving again the confines of the corporate structure to come do what I'm doing now. Um, so this was not without taking a risk and it was that not without being scary. Um, but in a way, I feel like I braced early retirements, um, but I'm still working and I'm still earning an income. It's just through a different means. So let me ask you this question. You know, You've worked in two different worlds now, uh, so to speak. When you look and at, at your truly wealthy clients, however you define that, what's usually the source of the wealth? Or is there a common theme? And how did those people make their money? Did they earn it? Did they inherit it? Like for people who are out there at their desk job, you know, trying to become wealthy, is that something that they can actually aspire to? Like what is it that you're seeing in practice? All right, this, this is, okay, I, I could go, I could talk for years on this. Um, I, I've seen, and this is part of the, the fun thing about being a wealth advisor, I've seen so many different family dynamics, and I've seen people, I mean, I, I've, I've worked with people who are, 
who have $20 million liquid and they live in this scarcity mindset as if everyone has more and, and what they have is not enough. And I've seen people who have a couple hundred thousand and they're like the wealthiest people in the world. Um, so, so with that, the, so, but let's just talk about wealth in terms of actual dollars. I can say that the clients that I've worked with that have call it north of $50 million fall into one of two categories. Um, they're either entrepreneurs and oftentimes it's in areas that you would never imagine. I'm, I'm making those stuff. This is not a real example, but like, you know, they have like a, a paint can company where they're like the number one paint can manufacturer and it's in a random town in New Jersey and they sell it for $60 million. Right. I mean, just things that you never would have even thought of and, and they sell it and, and they're able to extract out liquidity. Um, but I would say most often the $50 million plus are people that started a business and it's not always the most obvious things that you're thinking of. Um, the number two in terms of 50 million plus are people that inherited their money and they just come from just massively wealthy families. Um, it gets watered down through the generations. Um, but that said, you know, I, I have worked with a number of families who, where it's generational wealth and you're talking about, you know, grandparent or great-grandparent was a founder of one of the large Fortune 500 companies that still exists today. And, you know, they're the heirs of that. Um, I would say that if you're looking to get massively wealthy in terms of just maximizing dollars, um, and again, you want to be in that 50 million plus cohort, you know, being an attorney or an investment banker is not the way to get there. And it just makes me think, of, I don't want to say too much, but there was one family that I, I worked with where it was kind of the classic case of grandfather created the wealth, um, definitely a billion dollar family. Generation two really didn't work. Um, and they're spending money like crazy, but living a very cushy, affluent life. And the, the trouble though is generation three. And where generation three is going to inherit a fair amount of money, um, but in, you're talking about the low seven figure range. So inheriting a million, $2 million. But the problem is they've grown accustomed to living a billion dollar lifestyle. And I was talking to one of these kids who was dead set on being an investment banker in order to live the private jet lifestyle. <laughs> and I tried to tell him that, you know, if you look where the origin of this wealth is, it's not because your grandfather was an attorney or investment banker. It's because he had an interest, a hobby, a passion, and he used those skills to start a company that ultimately became a multi-billion dollar company. And I think that's what a lot of people missed when it comes to money and wealth. Oftentimes, the actual money is just a byproduct of doing something that you, you, you really love. And I would say that any of these entrepreneurs that I've met who have liquidated for, who've sold their businesses for 100 plus million dollars, when you talk up, when you talk to them, and you see the the excitement in their eyes, it's never about the money. They always go back and talking about the early days of building the company. So it was really just the the wealth was in the building of the company, and then the money was just a byproduct of it. Um. So that that whole generational um, wealth coming down the pipeline. It, it brings us, to me, it brings us back to the whole, like, 
working savings or, you know, working, um, they sold the company, they made their money from their, you know, quote unquote work. A lot of entrepreneurs, when they do sell, they don't stop working either. Like this idea of retirement, like you said earlier, it needs to be redefined. And I think it is being redefined by the way a lot of people live. It's not necessarily redefined in consensus, um, you know, media or articles or, you know, even the way maybe people are taught in schools. Like there, it's just such a different way of living um, when you do what you love and it allows you to live a lifestyle that you also, that you also love. Um, I, I have an example of that, a client that sold a business for north of $60 million. He was 78 years old. And as part of the agreement, it was he was going to be a salesperson for the company for like the next couple of years. And like he, he wanted that put in there. Like he wanted to continue working. Sold the business, $60 million comes into the account, clears. And the very next day, he's back in the office at 5 a.m. And it was just like, that's what he loved doing, right? Yeah. And it was, again, he was happy to have the liquidity and it was more just because he wanted to take care of his kids. But for him, it didn't really matter. He just, he, he's a type of guy that's going to be going in as long as he can. And that's where he gets his, his purpose from. And that's again, what a lot of people miss, you know, I can just give you just one other case study real fast of someone I've worked with. Um, the, a, the president of a midsize law firm, I'll just leave it at that. Um, had $20 million liquid, made a decent living, hated his job. He was like a super creative person and actually like a really good guy. Um, but he was just attached to the money and what it meant for his worth. But here's the thing. He, his clients were the founders of, and it was outside of New York, so I won't say the region, but like his cohort was basically the wealthiest people in that region. And even though he had $20 million, his, the people he was around on a day-to-day -day basis had billions. And he's the type of guy, he, hated his job. And it wasn't like, a, oh, I had a tough day. Like he genuinely hated his job. And he was 58 years old. And it was one of those things where he wanted to retire. He wanted to spend more time with his family. His son was a division one college tennis player and he wanted to travel around and watch his son play tennis. And I remember talking to him and be like, you can do this now. Like you don't have to wait. And he wouldn't do it because he needed enough money for a private plane. And he was attached to this idea that a private plane would finally put him in this cohort of being successful. And, you know, he talked about, I'm probably going to need 70, $80 million to get there. And, you know, we talked about that, like when you're there, the problem is it's going to be exciting for uh, maybe a year, if even. But then the thing is, you're probably going to have the worst private jet out of everyone in the hang. It's like one of those things where it just never stops. And that's why I use that example, because when I think about Again, money and wealth. This was someone who had a lot of money, but not a lot of wealth. They had no control over their time. And they, they allowed their ego to run right over them to the point where they were ultimately going to waste away. They're, they're going to waste away a lot of really solid years because of this attachment that means absolutely nothing. So circling back, you know, back to reality, and I say that somewhat jokingly, but, but not really, to, you know, most of the folks out there who you know, are not entrepreneurs, you know, they're physicians, they're lawyers, they're bankers, they're making a lot of money, they fall into that, you know, Henry category, so to speak. Uh, but they want to be wealthy, right? In whatever way, you know, kind of they define wealthy, they want to be wealthy. You know, 
is your advice, you know, go out and, and start your own company. You know, that, that's a challenge for a lot of people, of course, right. And risks that come with it. And, you know, the, the non-sexy side of entrepreneurship that, you know, we don't always talk about when you know, we entrepreneurs tout, you know, the benefits of entrepreneurship is that most companies fail. It's a roller coaster, tons of stress, uncertainty, unpredictable, um, you know, really got to be in it for the long haul. Um, but, you know, you rely on this underlying belief that smart, high energy, ambitious people will kind of move to the top. But if you're that person who's, you know, collecting a, you know, a W-2 from their employer, how do you think about wealth or how does your approach to, uh, you know, creating wealth over the long term, uh, being able to live a comfortable life as you get, you know, at or near, you know, those retirement years, how, how does that differ from, you know, the truly wealthy people out there? Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's a really important question. And by no means am I saying entrepreneurship is the only path to, you know, true wealth, happiness, and meaning. Um, I have a number of clients that kind of work in traditional fields that while they don't necessarily love their job, like they're not, they, they, they like it enough. And it, it's, it, and they're just trying to find out other areas of, of kind of that meaning, purpose, and excitement. So I'll just give you a quick case study. Um, a client of mine who's an accountant and is not going to change being an accountant. Like he's an accountant for life and he actually likes being an accountant. I shouldn't say actually, a lot of people like being an accountant. So he likes being an accountant. And, but the thing is he found himself in that lifestyle creep trap of every time he got promoted, he spent more money and it was always things and toys and a new car, you know, a new, you know, whatever the new gadget is. And part of it, we talked about like kind of reconnecting him to his, his hobbies and what he really liked doing. And this is a guy who really likes the arts. And we ultimately talked about like, you don't need to quit your job and try to make it on Broadway or make it in Hollywood. Like you can join a community theater company. Like you can do like a low, like just get involved somehow reconnected to your old hobby. And long story short, he was able to do that and be a part of a community play. And it was just an extracurricular. It didn't require any money. He's still doing his job as an accountant but it's getting away from just consumption and reconnecting to something that he was really excited to do as a kid. And I guess not realizing that he can continue to do those things as an adult. I, uh, I've gotten into baking and gardening, mm-hmm, <laughs> especially, <totally>. <laughs> especially <laughs> under these uh, shelter in place. I mean, we, like I work from home, Daniel and I, we like separately, of course we work from home, but um, so my life is not that much different than it was pre, you know, pre pandemic and pre shelter at home, but because I have more mental space in a way, because I don't, I can't even think about, Oh, maybe I should go over here or maybe I should schedule this lunch with somebody. Maybe I should do this. Like the only thing I can do, um, especially when my mind wants to go haywire is ground. And so I ground into physical things like uh, growing a vegetable garden or baking. And so I kind of feel like from that perspective, I'm a little bit of a retired grandma because yeah. I'm, you know, I'm doing all these things, but they, they bring me like uh, a lot of uh, calm 
and clarity Mm -hmm. and also like these little bits of joy of, of just like doing something. So I think about that, you know, the accountant that's doing the the community theater, you know, I'm not sitting here thinking, Oh, maybe I should monetize my black bean brownies and my celery sprouts, because that's another thing we tend to do, right? Oh, you love doing something. Well, you should make something of that. You should monetize it. You should make a course out of it. Like whatever. There's always this element of like adding something that in some ways dilutes the meaning Mm-hmm. of it. Um, so I love that example of your client doing something that is meaningful to him and doesn't have to become another chore or task or even job. And, and here's the thing, just just that act of getting involved in a hobby and reconnected to something that he really brings a lot of joy and passion, he's not consuming in other areas because he's no longer filling that void with stuff. Well, for what it's worth, Adapia, your vegan brownies are delicious. You <laughs> definitely could have a, have a future there. Um, you know, Ryan, as some practical advice, you know, let's say, you know, I'm a physician, for example, and after I pay for all my bills, my mortgage, um, you know, have money, you know, emergency funds, you know, tucked away, you know, maybe I've got $100,000 a year that's kind of my investable capital, so to speak. You know, what do I, what do I do with it? Mm-hmm. I mean, so if it's, you know, a hundred thousand invested of, of money, that's kind of earmarked to be invested. You don't need it any time. It's truly excess capital. You know, that's where it's going back to owning appreciating assets. So the, the two main appreciating assets that I'll talk about are, are stocks and liquid real estate. And, and I'm not talking about, owning just a rental property that may be something you want to do, but that's also, I, I caution against that. And I think that's oftentimes um, something that's, that's promoted or something that people think they should be doing, but missing the fact that you're not going to get rich owning one rental property. And there's a lot that goes into it. So going back to the whole thing about owning appreciating assets, there are two different flavors of appreciating assets. There's appreciating assets that have what I call a negative cost of carry and appreciating assets that have a positive cost of carry. Now, what does that mean? A negative cost of carry effectively means you have to pay to own the assets. So a rental property or or residential real estate, while it appreciates over time, you also have to pay to own the asset. The roof needs to be repaired, you're paying for it. House needs a paid job, you're paying for it. Um, furnace breaks down, you're paying for it. Okay. It costs money to own it versus appreciating assets that have a positive cost to carry. You know, that's stocks, for example. Um, you buy a diversified portfolio of stocks, uh, you know, you, you invest $50,000 in it. Um, you're not going to get a capital call if, you know, to put more money into the stocks. You're not going to have to pay for, um, I mean, you pay for it in terms of maybe this, if a company is not managing expenses appropriately and needs new property, plant equipment, et cetera, maybe the stock goes down. But ultimately, you kind of get the point of you're not getting a call in the middle of the night saying that you need to, to do something with it, right? It's truly passive. Um, so for you know, a physician or you know, someone who has excess capital, you know, I think a portfolio of stocks and liquid real estates, real estate and liquid real estate being uh, either REITs and or um, you know, 
know, crowdfunding platforms, I really think is the way to go and what I do for, for my clients. Because um, when you think about risk, because that's the pushback people have, like, oh, I don't want to take a lot of risk. Um, it's important, though, to also think about that risk comes in two different flavors. There's the risk of losing money. And that's what we mostly think about when it comes to risk. And that's where I put money in the stock market and three days later it's gone down and I feel like I lost money. Okay? But there's also another risk out there and a risk that most of us don't think about. And that's the risk of missing out. And the way to think about the risk that you're most exposed to all depends on the duration of the funds. So for example, if I have, if I'm going to buy a house in the next year and I have a down payment fund, um, that money is exposed to the risk of losing money, right? Because I know I need those funds. And if I put in the stock market and the stock market goes down, I'm going to have less of money. I'm going to have a, a, a smaller amount for a down payment and it might compromise the type of home that I want to get. Okay. Um, but the longer your duration, the longer you go out for so for retirement, for example, you know, if you're someone who's in your forties and you plan on retiring in 30 years, the riskiest thing you can do is actually not getting aggressive with your money because you're going to miss out over the long term. And you're going to be in a compromised position compared to someone that actually took some risk and acquired these appreciating assets at a younger age. So it's a long-winded way of saying acquire appreciating assets that don't require you to pay for them and hold them for a very long time. That's great advice. I like the distinctions that you're making on um, uh, the appreciating, depreciating, and the, also the two types of the two types of risk. That's really great, um, and it actually makes me think about. I was looking on your, um, I was actually on your LinkedIn page for your company and four months ago, you published a post and the, the image on the post is this flyer and it says, please stay on the path or rather it, it's probably a trail marker yeah. and it says, please stay on the path. And I thought that's more relevant than ever today, totally. isn't it? No doubt. No doubt. I mean, I, so many people are coming to me about this market volatility and there are, there are two things that I'm saying right now. Um, number one, just at a much deeper level, when you think about this 30 plus percent sell-off that we've had in the market, um, stocks over the long term return around 8 to 10%. Okay? It doesn't go up 8 to 10% every year, but over the long term, that's been kind of the general trend, um, which basically means your, mon your money's doubling every 7 to 10 years. Um, that said, nothing comes for free. And when you look at this volatility that we've experienced recently, the way that I'm framing this to my clients and to myself is this is the price of admission to have exposure to an asset class that returns 8 to 10% over the long term. You get rewarded with superior returns because of your ability to withstand this volatility in the short term. So I've even gone as far as saying like, it would be greedy not to expect this as a long-term stock market investor. Because why should you be uh, given the opportunity to compound at eight to 10% without going through these, these, these difficult periods, right? This is the price of admission. So when I'm talking about staying on the path, it's when we put the plan in place to begin with, we know this is going to happen, right? Um, but we position portfolios and I would advise anybody to position themselves in a place where they always have six months to a year of living expenses in cash or high yield savings. And by doing that, 
you're able to buffer yourself from stock market volatility. So right now, all my clients are required to have at least six months, you know, sometimes up to two years, depending on where they are in life, of living expenses in cash. At the same time, any known liability. So for example, I have a client that's in the process of buying a house. Um, they signed up with my firm back in November. I made them have their down payment fund in cash. Why? Because I didn't want the stock market to be going through a volatile period at the time they needed it. And lo and behold, they found their dream house recently, right? Um, so by having the any known liability in cash and having six months to up to two years of living expenses in cash, you're able to ride out these storms and you're not forced to sell into stock market volatility. And ultimately, if you're not forced into it, and if you can stay on the path, you're rewarded over time. And I think you're also rewarded just mentally, like psychosomatically. Um, like so much of what you've talked about with us, um, to me, always comes back to a personal, not just mindset. I think it's more than mindset because I think it's very much about psychology and like your emotional state and prepping mm -hmm. yourself because what you're saying to me is, um, you know, it's almost like a psychological cost and weathering the storm when we have, you know, like lately downturns, late, Lynn, by lately, I mean like the past 10 years, 12 mm -hmm. years is these downturns are huge and mm -hmm. big and, and they're, they're just beyond every time they just seem to be, um, more unthinkable. And hopefully that doesn't become a trend where every, you know, 10 to 12 years we have some giant black swan event. Um, but what I gathered from what you said that made a lot of sense to me is you have to be, it's, it's psychologically prepared for what may come. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I say in my adult life, I've had three once in a lifetime events. In 9-11, you had the financial crisis, and now you have a global pandemic. These yeah. things just happen. They seem to. I was thinking the same exact thing the other day. I thought uh, 9-11, uh, 2008, uh, it was a hedge fund when that happened. Um, and then, you know, and then this, so, um, I'd like to actually end, um, on something I think is really exciting and really upbeat. I mean, everything we've talked about is so interesting. I know we could talk for, for hours about all of this is, um, you know, you have a book coming out, which has been delayed because of totally. the pandemic. Um, but let's, let's, um, I'd love to hear about the book and when it's actually, um, when it is going to be coming out and how people can even um, sign up to, um, to get a copy of it or pre-order it. Yeah, no, thank you. This is, um, it, it has been delayed and it's actually, it, in a way, it's actually kind of a blessing that it's delayed um, in, in part because it's, um, you know, I started this business back at the end of last year and it's been really busy getting the business up and running. That one thing I've neglected is actually, you know, kind of setting up the infrastructure to release and launch this book. So while the publisher has been really helpful, like I haven't actually had the time and space to do it. And this is actually providing me the time and space to actually do some of this pre-work that I need to do in anticipation of the launch. So let's, kind of now where we are is that we're looking at more or less a September release date that's still being negotiated right now. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited for it. So it's called You're Making Other People Rich. And it's definitely a book about wealth management and building wealth. But it's very much along the lines of what we spoke about today in the sense of, and this comes from the personal experience and what I'm seeing from my clients is that 
so much of the process of building wealth isn't the mechanics of it. You know, buying an S and P 500 index fund is is really not that hard. Um, getting exposure to real estate isn't actually that hard. What's hard is the mental work of fighting back against the, the urge to consume, kind of being able to set your own boundaries, being able to create that friction between the impulse to consume and actually doing it, but then going through the whole process of, of detaching. So in a way, it's a book that I wish I would have read myself you know, 10 years ago when I thought that a certain income threshold was gonna solve all because, because it didn't. And I learned the hard way that even though I'm a technical person and I have all the right credentials and I'm in the business, you know, personally, I wasn't where I needed to be. And it wasn't because of lack of technical knowledge. It was because I didn't have the right boundaries and the right mindset. And I was too attached to ego expectations and what money meant about my own worth. That it didn't, it, it, it took for me to go through this process and I break it down between awareness, accountability, and action. And awareness are, the section awareness is really about being aware of the triggers that are causing you to consume in an unintentional, in an unintentional manner. Um, once you have the awareness, then you need the accountability and you actually need to look at yourself and you need to define what you want out of life. You need to understand what your values are bring those to the surface, and then detach from these areas that really weren't serving you, ultimately in order to define what wealth means, because wealth is so much about more than about money. It's about relationships. It's about time and how we spend our time. It's about you know, our, our health. It's about our experiences. And you can't get there until you're willing to take accountability. And then the last piece is action. And then that's actually then mechanically how you... Um, define what you need for retirement, how to make sure you're on a sustainable path to ultimately retire someday, whatever that means. Um, you know, introduction to the various asset classes and how they can be combined in order to reach your goals and objectives. So it's, it's definitely a book about the mindfulness and intention around wealth, but also the mechanics of it as well. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm really excited um, for you. I'm so glad you wrote this book um, and I, I'm really looking forward uh, to reading it. One of the things when you talk about wealth that I've learned and, and I'm sure um, is inherent in you as well is gratitude and no how much that has brought me a, a greater understanding around wealth as well. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the, uh, the living in an abundant mindset versus a scarcity mindset actually has very little to do with the amount of money you have. And it's 100% more about the mindset and your relationship to it. There's no question about it. And that's actually in the book. So if this message, if you're digging it, if it's resonating, I would say right now, if you go on my uh, website, just fill out a contact form and you'll be on my distribution list. All you really have to do is just put in your email and you'll be on my distribution list. And I'll be kind of releasing details about pre-ordering, et cetera, um, probably sometime in the summer. Awesome. Awesome. Well, on that note, thank you. Um, thank you so much. We've really enjoyed um, the conversation and learning from you and uh, for your time today as well. Really appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you guys. This has been awesome. And uh, when the book comes out, we'll do this again. Absolutely. I would love to. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Ryan, this has been, been excellent. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially 
we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.